This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. In a moment, we'll hear my conversation with cosmetic giant Jamie Kern Lima. But first, when I look at the week ahead, here's what you can expect. On Thursday, we're going to get trade numbers. Trade involves exports, imports of both products and services. And the U.S. will have a big trade deficit. And there will be the usual wailing about how this shows the U.S. isn't as strong as it should be. Well, let's get a couple of things straight. A trade deficit is not the equivalent of a company losing money. All it means is we bought a lot of stuff overseas, and what they leave out is that overseas people buy a lot of securities and in factories and putting in new things in the United States. So in terms of cash in and out, it's about a wash. But when we buy something, say, from China, China then uses those dollars to buy U.S. treasuries. But U.S. treasuries, securities, other securities, investing in American new factories, expanding American businesses, those don't get included in the trade numbers. So don't take the numbers seriously. Just remember this. The United States has had a trade deficit with the rest of the world for about 350 out of the last 400 years since the Jamestown settlement in Virginia in 1607. And then go outside and look around you and see how devastating that has been, how poor we've been over 400 years. Absolute nonsense. It leaves out flows of investment. So don't get worried about it, even though it'll be a big hoo-ha on Thursday. We'll also get weekly claims on employment for people who are unemployed. Those numbers should be good. We'll also get numbers on inventories of gas and petroleum. Uh, petroleum should be high, but the fact of the matter is the U.S. is producing a lot of gas and oil, and we need more pipelines and more facilities to export that around the world. So if you're worried about the trade deficit, let's get these pipelines built, let's get these terminals up and running, and we'll sell a lot more to the world. Then two other numbers this week, what they call the Producer Price Index and the Consumer Price Index. They'll come out uh, Thursday and Friday, and on those numbers, there'll probably be nothing alarming. We're not going to have hyperinflation. So overall, the week should be, and I hesitate to say this because that means something will happen, but at least on these predictable things, not much is going to be going on. And again, on the trade deficit, it's not the equivalent of a company losing money. We've been running them for centuries. When people love to invest in the United States and they get the money to invest by selling us stuff. Okay, now let's get to my conversation with Jamie Kern Lima. She's the CEO and co-founder of It Cosmetics. And after our conversation, do stick around because I'm going to then follow that with my read of the week. There's so many things to admire about this extraordinary entrepreneur. She demonstrates what makes this country so strong. For one, she's not a complainer. In fact, her solution to a very personal problem turned into a multi-billion dollar business. And she's tenacious. 
So much rejection was thrown at her along the way, but she just kept going. It sounds easy to say. When you hear her words, you'll take inspiration when you face obstacles in trying to pursue your goals. And she stayed true to her vision. For example, she was one of the first to use real women to model her cosmetic line, despite experts telling her, you just don't do that. The progress of American business is fueled by visionaries like Jamie, who do things that not only had not been done before, but also things that enhance the quality of life. So Jamie Kern Lima is a part of this great innovation tradition. You're going to love this conversation. Let's get to it. Jamie, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, you've had a most unusual career, huge success selling out your company to uh, L'Oreal for $1.2 billion. And I can testify in my own family, we have five daughters, and uh, one of them told me on the phone last night, she used a phrase that everyone seems to use about you, game changer. So you've had an extraordinary career. You started out in the state of Washington, going to Washington State. You apparently worked at Denny's. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, so starting in, uh, in, in college, I've always worked a lot of jobs. So I've always been uh, super ambitious. And I, I grew up in a smaller town in Washington State. Um, and I always sort of like felt something deep inside, like I want to get out and sort of like seize the day and the moment, see everything, do everything. How can I get out of here? So I knew I needed to go to school. Um, my my stepbrother made me a bet. He, and I told him my future plans. I want to go get my Ivy League MBA. I want to do all these things. And he said, okay, well, you know, if you go to college and, and you and you get a 4.0, I'll pay for your grad school. So he kind of made me this bet. So, your stepbrother did this? Yes, he did. I had this goal and I was laser focused on it. And I held him to it. <laughs> I held him to it. Um, when I graduated. But then you did Miss Washington USA? Yeah. I decided to do it, to enter it, and try to get scholarship money to help pay for pay for school because I paid for my own undergrad. And, uh, and Imagine I, you didn't get big tips at Denny's. Not so much. No, you know what? I got fired from Denny's. This is a true story. I worked at Denny's in college, and uh, I don't know what was going on in the kitchen, but it would take so long for pancakes. And so I was, you know, the waitress, so I would just talk and talk and just kind of get to know people. And um, anyhow, I got fired for talking too much. A lot of people, when the first time they get fired or they get a setback, really uh, turn on themselves. What did I do wrong? It's my fault. What did you take away from that? And uh, why didn't that stop you from saying, maybe I'm just dreaming too much, get real? Yeah, I think it's two things. I think I've always had a really strong faith, and I've always tried to keep my faith bigger than my fear. And that's how I've done my whole journey. And it's tough, but I think um, I think I've had that inside of me, deep down inside, even from even from the Denny's days when I was getting fired and, and had no money. <laughs> well, after all of this, you then went to business school. It was two of my favorite years of my life. That's when I, I fell in love with journalism. I had gone to Columbia Business School thinking I was going to come out doing finance or or consulting, but I started writing for the school paper um, because I wanted to capture the, the life story, the experiences, the what do you wish you knew when you were in business school moments from all the alumni professors, students, and so I started writing an article called Uncovered, and it was just these super long interviews that were really personal. 
I just I fell in love with journalism. And so in between years one and two of business school, usually uh, everyone does an internship. It's usually paid, and it's usually in the area you want to go into. I did an internship in a tiny town unpaid so that I could learn how to write for broadcast. So uh, I was at a news station. I learned how to one-man band report. You set it up. You shoot all your own video. You mic people, do the interviews, do your own stand-up, get back to the station, write your scripts. We would edit tape to tape at that point, and, and then your package is done for the nightly newscast, which you'd usually have to go on yourself and 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 present live. And Good training for an entrepreneur. Yes, sir, it was. And just being resourceful and having to figure out things that you have no idea how to do. So I did that and I decided after after business school I'd go into journalism. So I got to, to Portland, Oregon as an anchor and, um, and reporter. So that was happening at the same time where I was all of a sudden getting skin issues and becoming obsessed with why doesn't makeup work for women that actually have issues with their skin and that was happening in parallel. Describe that when the rosacea came and uh, what that did. So I, I I would be anchoring the morning news and under hot lights and HD and I would hear in my ear from the producer there's something on your face there's something on your face so I'm trying to you know you're 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 talking live obviously and and doing the news and I knew every time I look in the mirror no there's nothing on my face that's my redness that's coming through the makeup I had tried everything that I could get my hands on and I thought if I can't find anything to solve this problem there must be so many other people out there that are having the same frustrations or they have just given up on on you know makeup or anything else and that's kind of when that light bulb moment went off and I became laser focused and obsessed with 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 figuring this out with figuring out is this a true white space um, and is this what I'm supposed to be doing next Um, so that's how the whole the whole idea came so how did you take that next step? You realized the dermatologists weren't helping you, what yeah. was out in the market wasn't helping you. So long story short, I uh, got married uh, in 2007. Um, my husband I met at Columbia Business School also. He was in finance and you know I was in, in television news. We, on our honeymoon flight to South Africa, wrote the business plan for It Cosmetics, which is not very romantic. And then we eventually both quit our jobs. All of our, our money, we had just a little tiny bit of money that was our own and a couple friends and one family member, but really, really small amount. So did you go to libraries online? How did you do the research on ingredients and things like that? Yeah, so how we started is, um, so my husband's from Brazil. We started meeting with different plastic surgeons and dermatologists that are family friends, and we started understanding why is it, how is makeup made? How can it be made differently? Why does it not work on on people that actually have, you know, challenges with their skin? And and, and now what I know is 70% of women have hyperpigmentation, right? So there's so many women out there that were frustrated. Um, and what we started doing is the whole concept of instead of making makeup, we started formulating skincare and then infusing coverage pigments into it and color pigments into it. It had never been done before. So I, we were very scrappy and um, started in your apartment, right? Yes, yes. So we were in our, our apartment. Um, when you are in beauty, you one of the most closely held secrets is who your manufacturer is. So 
I just started doing as much research as I can. And I would cold call every beauty company and I would ask uh, whoever answered the phone who their manufacturer was. Usually they would hang up on me. I got one one company, a smaller company. I look back now and think, what was this person thinking? But the, the woman who had answered the phone, she was just, I guess, just naive maybe. And I just started talking with her and she shared with me who their manufacturers are. I'm like, oh, that's great. And she gave me a guy's name and number. And I'm like, that's wonderful. And I kept talking. I thanked her. Um, That was our first manufacturer. He's in New York. And I called him up. We went and met. And he is um, still to this day, now 10 years later, one of my close friends and one of our amazing manufacturers. And uh, the industry, too, was beginning to change. Describe the changes uh, you began to see and how you achieved your breakthrough. Being able to go direct to consumer, especially, especially in the past three to four years, oh my gosh, it's it's changed everything. And there are some exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs because of it. There are also some some scary moments for consumers because of it. I think that there's gonna be a moment soon where regulatory compliance and lack of it in the direct-to-consumer space online, especially in beauty right now, everyone in the world can start a beauty brand and just start selling product. Um, And I think that much like food, I think consumers soon are going to get a lot more aware and particular about what is in their products and where they're being made. Uh, And so when we launched, digital wasn't as big yet. There wasn't that much direct-to-consumer quite yet. It was uh, 2008, um, but it was just starting in the sense that what kept us alive in the beginning, because everyone said no to us. I thought our products were life-changing. I would send them to QVC, send them to Sephora, send them to Ulta over and over and over and hear no, no, no. Every department store, no, 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 no. We got to under $1,000 in our bank account, which was also my personal bank account and the company bank account. I didn't know how we were going to pay our one employee who was on payroll, and I didn't know if we were going to make it. I mean, it it didn't. And I'll never forget when we got a, a yes to go on QVC. And I... I mean, if I had control of everything, we would have been in Sephora and Ulta and we would have gone out of business anyway because I didn't understand how much of an infrastructure, how operationally sophisticated you need to be on the back end, how expensive fixtures are in your education team that goes across the country. We would have failed. So the way it worked out, huge blessing that we did QVC first. But when we finally, after three years, got a yes, what it meant was you have 10 minutes you have one shot, and if you do not hit this dollars per minute sales, you don't come back. At that moment, we were doing two to three orders a day on our website. That's it. And QVC, we had to bring in over 6,000 units of our concealer called Bye Bye Under Eye, over 6,000 units to sell in 10 minutes. If it didn't sell, not only would we not go back to QVC, we probably would have gone out of business because what are we going to do, you know, with 6,000 plus units of concealer when we're selling two to three a day? So um, in that moment, we met with different experts that told us, okay, here's how to succeed on QVC. Every single expert told us the same thing. These are the types of models. You want to use this age range, these skin tones, this level of what they'd call aspiration. And so we took a huge risk. And, And what I mean by that is this was before YouTube and influencers were big. So no one had done this yet. And I told QVC, I want to take my makeup off. I want to show, you know, how my face looks without it and my 
my, my bright red rosacea so that if I'm a woman sitting at home and I have an issue, I can see how it's going to work for me. And I want to cast, you know, diverse models with different skin tones and different ages. I'll never forget my before and after. I was so stressed out because I wasn't nervous for TV. For me, that's fun and easy. It was that literally everything was on the line for the business. And we were taking this huge risk doing something that we were advised not to do from all the experts, but that no one had ever done before. But I showed my before and after with my bare face and we showed all of our beautiful, real women. And at the 10 minute mark, the sold out sign went up and I start sobbing. (laughs) And I was like, and then I got back to the green room after and my husband's like, we're not going out of business. And I was like, oh. And uh, that was our first airing. And that year we did a couple more. Uh, The next year, over a hundred shows on QVC. We got all the way up to two, we do over 250 live shows a year. Um, We're now the largest beauty brand QVC's ever had in in the history uh, of QVC. This this is interesting because you've uh, made the point when you're receiving award and other occasions. You once said, seven years late, almost all makeup brands show real women in uh, before and after situations, but we still have a ways to go. Yes. D- describe what the ways to go in your mind is. I, I maybe didn't didn't keep some friends when I spoke at an event where every single beauty owner was there. I, I was receiving a big award and it was such an honor, but I just wanted to take that moment and remind everyone that the people in that room that day, it literally impact billions of women globally. The decisions- when you said, how will these images impact your mothers and your sisters and how will they impact your daughters? Yes, I just think life is short and I want to be of service and make a difference even if I lose some friends and I just really called everyone out on it and said exactly you know what will you do with the power that is you but I hope that that at least our success is proof to all the other brands you're not going to lose sales if you stop photoshopping images one of the things you don't do what some others do and that is have a bunch of launches see which sticks to the wall so to speak you try to do a handful but make them big make them big exactly and I think when I look even in our own industry the, the brands that do really well and then all of a sudden they disappear I think it's easy to get distracted by what everyone else is doing and start losing sight of your own brand DNA, of how you position your own products. And it is it is hard when you have so much respect for retailers and you're frankly really dependent on your revenue stream from them, uh, but you have to say no, no, that's not right. Or, or they'll say, okay, well, you know, in fall of 2019, this is going to be huge, this is going to be hot, this is on trend, can you, can you make something now? Because we're going to do a full animation around it. But if you know that that product isn't right for your own brand DNA, you have to say no. And the hardest thing is your own employee who then runs that channel is upset because they want to make their buyer happy, but you're saying no, that's not right for us and it's it's a lot to navigate, but I think I think sticking to our authentic brand DNA, even when it means choosing not to make more money short term, uh, I think is why we kept building customer trust. Now you're part of L'Oreal. Yeah. They, they, they paid money for it. How do you resist the pressures from them who may have a different uh, outlook and how you treat this store than uh, your gut may tell you? Uh, a lot has changed for the better. Um, and then a lot of things are more difficult. And so, you know, we were... Um, 
So, so there's a woman at L'Oreal who was a mentor of mine for three years. Hamilton. And Carol Hamilton, yes. And she, you know, was a big part of our comfort with even L'Oreal and, and knowing they believed in our brand. Uh, she fought for me to be the first female CEO in L'Oreal's 100-plus year history and all of that. But we were still debating, do we go public? Um, it, had we gone public, I think that we would have made a lot more money. But I've worked 100-hour weeks for 10 years, and I think that had we made the choice to go public, I think that would have just gotten worse. And and so we're kind of going back and forth. um, And we chose L'Oreal. And one of the main reasons for that was we had just started expanding outside of the U.S. What I realized quickly is every single country, not only, of course, has extremely different cultures, but different HR practices and employment practices, different regulatory compliance issues. Trying to be an expert at all that, I knew we could go, we would go a lot slower on our own, even if we went public. So, you know, L'Oreal, you know, has such amazing infrastructure already that's hyper local and focused on um, even just what consumers want in that in that country all over the world and now you know I have a team there that helps a lot but then I also have to really state my case and fight for things I believe in if they're slightly different on the flip side there, it's nice for the first time to not to have to worry about every single detail about everything. How much did working with equity firms, uh, which preceded L'Oreal, mm-hmm. train you for that? When, why did you decide to go that route? And I have to read this uh, statement, this famous statement the fellow said to you. I don't know if women will buy makeup from somebody who looks like you, you know, with your body and with your weight. Yes, oh, that was a moment. So, you know, we started meeting with people early on when we started getting a little bit of momentum online. And then, of course, when we launched on QVC and that started taking off. And there was a private equity firm that um, we had met with several times. I thought we were really far along in the process. And then uh, and then it became a no. I really wanted him to be honest. I'm like, let me know. And I was thinking he was going to say, oh, you know, you need to build your, your infrastructure on, you know, your operations. And I remember, I remember walking down the street. I remember what I was wearing. I remember where I was when he looked at me and he says, I'm going to be honest. I'm just not sure women would buy beauty from someone who looks like you, you know, with your weight and all of that. And he was describing it. And I just kind of looked at him and I don't think he was aware that it would be hurtful. I think he thought he wanted he had enough respect for us in the process we went through to be to give candid feedback. Uh, but when he said it, it just First of all, deep down inside, I knew he was wrong. Um, I knew he was wrong. But uh, it was very fun when when the day we sold to L'Oreal, it would have been his most successful right. uh, investment in the history of his firm had he said yes. We ended up partnering with TSG Consumer Products, another one of the best experiences of my professional life. It's interesting. We went through four years of a partnership with them before we, we sold to L'Oreal. Um, and, and shockingly didn't have a single disagreement. But I guess that's maybe when you make people money, they like you and it's easy. But um, <laughs> but it was great. I mean, we didn't have beauty experience and they brought a lot of experts in with that. Um, the other thing that they did, which this, is a li- this might be a little surprising, Steve, they would encourage us to um, spend more money because we were so cheap. And I think like when you go from having no money and then all of a sudden your company starts getting more and more successful, I think it's the best thing because you have such discipline with what you spend and you are scared to lose what you have. 
One of the things of uh, entrepreneurship, we tend to focus on one individual, but many times it's a partnership, Page and Brin, Allen and Gates, Wozniak and Jobs, Henry Ford and a fellow nobody rumors today, James Cousins. Mm-hmm. You have a very unique partnership. Mm-hmm. What's it like to work with your husband? This morning I was thinking about your journey too, Steve, and I was thinking, you know, how it is to work with family. <laughs> it's it's the biggest blessing in that you trust. You have that that deep trust from the beginning, but it is so hard to ever have boundaries between, you know, personal and work life. That has been the hardest thing. What's so difficult is finally we get to whatever time at night, it'd be like 10, 11 p.m., midnight, and you're like, okay, okay, I'm just going to um, uh, not think about work. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, five minutes later, it'd be either be me or it'd be him. Oh, did you know that? Da-da-da-da. And then it's something because it, it, first of all, when you're an entrepreneur, your brain never stops. You can't just leave the office and not think about it. It's not like it's, a light switch. It, it isn't. Yeah. And it's just this unremitting pressure, but also unremitting passion, right? And it's just always going because usually when one of you wants to unplug, the, it doesn't sync with the other. You know, we tried everything from, okay, after this time at night, we won't talk about work, right? It's impossible. So you know? how do you cope with stress? Oh. I just started meditating, actually just started this year. Um, love it a lot. I, um, I pray a lot. Uh, and I think that when I focus on, you know, even walking in here, for example, okay, sitting down with Steve Forbes, that's a huge deal. That's a huge deal. It, no, honestly, so, so, um, so one day out of the blue, Oprah invited me to her house for lunch. And literally getting an email from Steve Forbes to come here, it's the same, it's the same things where, okay. You just made my day. <laughs> tell my wife this tonight. She won't believe it. But. <laughs> it's a huge deal. And, uh, and, and, and so naturally, I'm super stressed out about it. Am I, you know, what if, what if all the questions are about global economy and I got to be up you think all these thoughts. The way I dealt with today and every other time is I take a moment and like I literally will say a prayer that I am of service in some way to other people. So that's how I do it. I make it about not me. <laughs> so what can others learn from your experiences? Mm. What, what do you tell young people? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I learned was figuring out how to not let hearing no translate into doubt in my own head, doubt of myself or my idea or, 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 or my product or my business. Um, and, and the other big thing I learned too, and I learned this the hard way, I wish I had learned it earlier. If you have an idea that's, you know, that's truly novel, most likely everyone's going to say it's not going to work because they don't have any social proof that tells them in their subconscious mind it is going to work. How would you describe Uh, the environment today for female entrepreneurs versus 10 or 20 years ago? Mm. Yeah, such a complex issue. Progress has been so slow. I mean, you look at even even pay inequality and how it's still a big issue. We've made progress, obviously, in the past 20 years, but not a whole lot of progress. Um, You know, one of the things I, I... I'm fascinated by is even when you look at studies of kids right now and how young kids are treated. You know, boys and girls are are treated differently even by parents unintentionally. I think it's going to take 
quite a while. Um, for the culture to change? For the culture to change. I'm so passionate about, about the topic and about being hyper aware when I'm interviewing uh, candidates that I'm not, uh, you know, biased in one way or another, whether it comes to the amount of money we offer them or who we hire. But at the end of the day, you know, I just became um, a mother. And the thing that I've really realized Talk about sleepless nights. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I am blessed to, to you know, there's that whole debate can women do it all too and that whole thing and, and one of the things I'm most grateful for is that I have other uh, incredible people helping me uh, as well because I, I don't think you can do it all well. I don't. I think that something will suffer. But what I've noticed, Steve, is even now, I'll be with my husband. So many people ask me, like, how do you do it all? Like, you know, your job and you're a mom. But no one says to him, how do you do it all? Your job and you're a dad. No one ever says that. And so even right the now. the mother's more important, that's why. <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe that's. But it's so interesting that, you know, yeah. even, even um, other women I know or other people I know that are brilliant and and thought leaders in what they do still will ask questions like that. And it just tells me that that inherent um, bias runs deep. I think it's going to take a while for us to overcome it. So I think it takes uh, companies, institutions, men and women being hyper aware of it. I I think, though, that we'll get there for sure. For sure. Jamie, thank you very much. Thank you. What an honor. I'm so grateful. Thank you. And before we go, here's my read of the week. I want to recommend a magazine article in The New Yorker. You can find it on newyorker.com. It's by Douglas Preston. And the magazine article is called The Day the Earth Died. Online, the article is called The Day the Dinosaurs Died. Now, we all think of the world coming to an end, but the world did come to an end of sorts 66 million years ago. A meteor, asteroid, hit the Earth. It was six miles wide, traveling 45,000 miles an hour. When it hit the Yucatan Peninsula, it made a hole 18 miles deep. Experts figure today the energy that it released was the equivalent of over 1 billion Hiroshima atomic bombs, blasted a hole in the atmosphere, burned much of the Earth, and you can find debris from the Earth on planets like Mars and other planets and moons in the universe. Over 99% of all living organisms died. What paleontologists call the Cretaceous period ended and the tertiary or Paleogene period began. Now, the reason the article is interesting is this formerly no-name paleontologist, a fellow named Robert De Palma, found in what they call the Hell Creek Geological Formation, which is in North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and Wyoming, a dig site that was the equivalent of the California Gold Rush. Extraordinary number of fossils. And the reason this was interesting is there was a big fight among historians and paleontologists about whether the dinosaurs were dying out before this asteroid hit the Earth. They point to volcanic activity in what today is India and saying this was well happening before. I won't go into the details on it, but what this shows, this uh, guy Robert De Palma has found, demonstrates the dinosaurs were doing very nicely overall and that suddenly came to an abrupt end. Now, this was bad news for the dinosaurs, 
and it's been a subject of cartoons ever since. Uh, there was one in The New Yorker the other day, a dinosaur is eating uh, vegetation, and says to the other dinosaurs, you see this meteor coming from the sky. Dinosaur says to the other dinosaur, here I am eating all this kale, and it's not going to do me any good. But the good news from this disaster beyond comprehension is it made possible the rise of we the people, human species. We never could have evolved if the dinosaurs were still around. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 